Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Today, my guest is Jamie, who will tell part two of her story of being diagnosed with breast cancer during her first pregnancy. Last week, during part one, we spoke about the pregnancy itself, and this week, we're going to talk about the aftermath. For those of you who missed part one, I highly recommend you listen to that one prior to today's. As I said in last week's intro, this was originally a high-risk birth story from April 2021, and Jamie is not her real name. She wanted to remain anonymous. Also, as I reported last week, both Jamie and her baby are doing great, and subsequent to recording that podcast, Jamie had another successful pregnancy, and now she's the mother of two beautiful children. Before we start the podcast, I wanted to take a break and wish a very happy birthday to Mia Fox who turns 16 this week. Sweet Mia is our baby, the youngest Fox child, and I've been trying desperately to get her on the podcast as a guest. It's going to be awesome when she agrees. But I guess she's got a really tough agent or whatever it is, and she has not yet agreed. So for any of you who know her, try to cajole Mia to accept my invite. Mia, happy birthday. We love you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Enjoy part two. Have a great week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. When did the lumpectomy get done ultimately? So the lumpectomy was 10 days after my C-section. Right. So in those 10 days, you know, I had physical difficulties, but sure. also emotional difficulties. Yeah. You know, recovering from the C-section was not easy. My breast surgeon had told me to suppress the milk from the affected breast. Mm -hmm. So because the less milk that was in the breast for the lumpectomy, the cleaner, you know, yeah. the surgery would be and the milk makes everything, you know, yeah. hard to do yeah. during surgery. So, so finicky, those surgeons. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, of course, I'm trying, yeah, you know, yeah. I want it to be, you know, perfect for the sure. surgeon. I don't, you don't want to muddle things. But at the same time, I had this tiny baby. She wasn't even four pounds. I tried to breastfeed her from my good breast in the NICU and she didn't latch. And I just took her off and I just said, I can't, I couldn't do it. I felt like there were a lot of things going on. Mm. Ultimately, I felt like I couldn't, I was, I felt very much like a failure just uh, in general, just uh, because I knew that of everything I was going to go to. Like, why do I want to breastfeed her now when I know in 10 days I'm not going to be able to? Why do I want to give her that only to take it away? So what I did was I pumped from my good breast as much as I could to give her the colostrum and whatever. I wasn't making a lot. I think that's probably down to the stress and all of that. But I did the best I could. And I feel happy about those decisions that I made at that time, even though my surgeon wasn't happy because sort of you're stimulating one breast, the right. other breast contralaterally right. might get messages. So it wasn't suppressing as well. But I felt ultimately like I did, I did what I could. Um, to help my daughter be strong and grow. Yeah, so 10 days later, I had the lumpectomy. Um, during the lumpectomy, they also do what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, right? where they um, check the first uh, however many lymph nodes are in the chain under your armpit. And my lymph nodes were negative. Thank God. I was very, very lucky. After that was done, and you said you ultimately did need chemo, and right. you, you had made a decision before the chemo to have eggs retrieved, like as if you're undergoing IVF sort right. Of right away. And that was pretty soon after you delivered. I mean, very soon. It was more actually, soon than typical. It obviously. was very difficult. So, yeah. um, you know, luckily I was recommended to go to a very, very yeah. good fertility specialist here in the city. When you have um, 
it's called definitive surgery. So my lumpectomy was like my definitive, my curative right. surgery. You have to, if you need chemo, you have their are guidelines. Like it has to be within a certain amount of weeks in order to be optimal. Yeah. So, you know, my body, I mean, I still had like a gravid uterus, like yeah. a gravid uterus, like everything yeah. needed to kind of um, settle down before I could start medications that were going to stimulate my ovaries. So, you know, that was difficult. Some women are able to do more than one round before their chemo and some women not. For me, I was only able to do one round and I would say it was moderately successful. I would say I think definitely it was not optimal because I was so close to being postpartum, but I was able to freeze a couple of embryos. So that was really, really fortunate. Right. It's great. And it's great that they were willing to do it, to work with you for sure. for the timing. I think that in the cancer realm, especially breast cancer, which unfortunately affects a lot of young mm-hmm. women, I feel like it's like a totally different ball game. Like if you look back even 10 years ago to now, the things that are advocated for. Yeah. And fertility preservation is just one of those things Absolutely. that is so great that it's really stressed and they really try to do it as much as possible. I was able to um, free some embryos. And then as soon as that was over, like I had mentioned before, I got the results that I needed chemo. And then I did chemo. How long were you doing the chemo? was three months, three four months. cycles. Okay. Yeah. My daughter was very small mm-hmm. at the time. She wasn't even three months old. I would say she was a healthy baby, but she, she was preemie. Sure. She was very small. You know, I needed help. I needed a lot of help mm-hmm. taking care of her. And I was just very lucky and grateful that my parents were able to literally stop their lives to help me. Somebody had to work. So right. my husband had to work. Yeah, it was not easy. It was... um. Chemo was a very, very trying time from the standpoint of being a mother, trying my best to take care of my daughter. It was very hard. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's your first baby, right? You had a difficult pregnancy. You had a, a not a difficult delivery per se, but not sort of what you were expecting. And you had an operation, you had another operation. You have a cancer diagnosis, you're getting chemo. I mean, it's, yeah, like this is a real rough time. Yeah. Emotionally, physically, mentally. I mean, it's just, it's. I mean, with the chemo, you have good days and you have bad days. And on the bad days, I just needed to be alone. Yeah. And there were just days where I would just hand my daughter off to my mother or my father. And I would say, I can't do it right now. There were days where I would just hold her and cry because I just, I didn't see the end for me. And I also felt like this is not what I wanted for my daughter. Like this is not the kind of mother she's like, you know, I'll never forget. I woke up one night in the middle of chemo and I woke my husband up and I said, I need to, I need to talk to you. He's like, okay, we get up. It's never a good start. Never a good start. And I said, you know, I've been really thinking a lot, very hard about this. He goes, okay. And I said, I think we need to put our daughter up for adoption. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, no, really. And I mean, if I tell you, Dr. Fox, not in yeah. my right mind. Yeah. I said, she doesn't deserve a mother like this. She's, you know, this is going to scar her for life. I can't hold her. There are days I don't want to be with her or be around anybody. What am I going to be like after all of this? Am I ever going to be normal? Am I going to be able to give her what she wants? Like, this is not fair to her to like be in a home with somebody who's so sick. It's not fair. We should just... I want to give her a great life. My husband's like, go back to bed. (laughs) Go back to bed. Like you're talking total, complete nonsense right now. It just touches on the point of like total desperation and 
feeling of inadequacy, which ultimately my husband told me, he's like, this is just like a blip in the radar, like of her life. Oh, no. And she, she's yeah. not going to remember no. one second of it. And if anything, when she's older and I tell her the story, she'll really, you know, admire me. And you know, hopefully, yeah. yeah. If she's a teenager, you know? maybe she'll talk to right. you. The, uh, yeah, she'll acknowledge exactly. you. Were you having any professional mental health no. care during the time? I mean, it was offered to me. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm just saying, were you, so you weren't. It was, no, okay, I that's, was not. Yeah. And no. it, again, that doesn't, and if you were, it doesn't mean that wouldn't have yeah, happened anyways. Also, you know? I also want to touch on this is that I definitely don't think, I didn't have postpartum depression. Uh-huh. Like I didn't have the blues, like meaning it was all situational. Sure. <laughs> like I felt like my anxiety or depression was completely situational because of what was going on. Yeah. And as soon as I was able to really grapple with it, you know, I clawed my way out of it and I couldn't have done it without my family and some very good friends. But um, ultimately, it was really my husband saying, no, like you are going to do this. Like you will bathe her. You will feed her. Like you will do all of these things and you can do it. Like you feel fine. He doesn't come out sounding too good on that statement. No, no. I mean, <laughs> you he will was, feed her. No, <laughs> I know. You no, will bathe but her. Meaning, meaning <laughs> you like, can do it. You can yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. You can do it. Um, meaning and he's my, listening, my husband, like, whoa, my husband's whoa. literally a saint. Anybody <laughs> who knows him. Like, whoa, I just no, got thrown under the bus the here. Most, no, he's the most hands-on <laughs> father. He's like, I'm not Ike Turner. He's literally the most hands-on father. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Totally, I won the lottery yeah. um but yeah and so about when you're saying how you you would give the baby to your parents for the day or yeah it, it, listen you're a parent i'm a parent i can tell you that i can tell you right now that your parents are so thankful they were able to do that because they're seeing their 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 baby girl suffer right right and she's in misery and they're like at least i can do this right 100%. there's one thing i can sit in her i could sit in her living room and look at yeah. her all day but 100 I can do something to help her heal. Essentially, you gave them an opportunity to help, which is so important for them. Yeah, 100%. It was definitely, it was needed all around. Yeah. And I would say that the turning point for me was really just like on those good days, meaning some of my parents would come during chemo days. Like mm -hmm. when you have chemo, you have like the bad days right. or a couple of days after, and then you start coming out of it and you start feeling fine, where it was just me. It was just me and my daughter, meaning they would go, yeah. my husband would go to work and I'd be home with her. And the beginning, I felt like, well, what kind of what, what kind of mom am I? I'm just sitting here. I don't take her out on her stroller. I don't have the energy to push the stroller. I don't. So I just sit here all day. And at first, I felt like I'm not giving her enough. And then I thought, you know what? Like, this is everything. As long as we're together. Those days that we were alone, where I was just taking care of her, even if I had no hair and I had right. no eyebrows and, you know, I wasn't feeling great. Right. Neither did she. Yeah, neither yeah. did she. And we were doing it just her and I all alone. It's um, amazing. And we did it. And we did great. So, you know, we grew our hair out together. It was funny. I always joked we had a competition who's going to grow yeah. their hair first. <laughs> These are the things you look back on, obviously. Yeah. And, the, you know, there's all the trauma you look back on. But then there's this sort of like sweet moments at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're three years out now. Just most importantly, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good days and bad days. I think something very important to realize about breast cancer is that a lot of people think when the surgery or the chemo is over, it's over. And it's not for me because I had hormone positive breast cancer. The treatment that I am to receive mm -hmm. either for five or 10 years has some very serious side effects, which affects everybody differently. For me, the side effects were basically pretty crippling for me. Joint pain and joint stiffness from the hormone suppression. So meaning some women can take only tamoxifen alone. Right. Other people get ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen or ovarian suppression plus 
an aromatase inhibitor, and all of those elements that suppress your estrogen basically cause, besides the menopausal symptoms of like hot flashes and whatever, one of the side effects that are the most debilitating is joint pain. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the other issue that came up for me um, once my chemo and all of that was over was starting that treatment because I felt like here I am, like now I'm finally able to be this person, this active mom and do all these things for my daughter to the point where I was so arthritic that I couldn't even close her snaps like on her on her yeah. onesies. I couldn't button a button, I couldn't tie a shoe, I couldn't turn a doorknob. It was painful just to hold the stroller bar. So those are all difficult things. The oncologist will work with you to try different modalities to try and help with that. But ultimately, it's very debilitating. And, you know, other side effects, which whatever I won't go into now. But overall, where I'm at right now, I'm actually taking a break from my treatment to try to have another baby. And so I can fully say that the doctor did not know what she was talking about when she told me that it will never happen for me. Because since then, I have read, researched, talked, learned and all of the most recent evidence, which if you're a doctor or a scientist, right. we believe in evidence, we believe right. in science and facts, right. um, show me the data. Right. Right? Hashtag science. Right, exactly. <laughs> Hashtag science shows that, you know, um, for women with early stage breast cancer who are in their reproductive years, that after a certain amount of months on hormone suppression, it's safe to have a baby and that it won't increase your chance of recurrence. It may even decrease it. Right. There's actually a big trial going on right now called the Positive Trial, which is an acronym, which I don't know right It's now. always an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it's pregnancy outcomes and safety yeah. after breast cancer. And so I actually wanted to be in the trial. It was really important for me. I made it like my plan. That's actually really what got me through a lot of my treatment was that ultimately I was going to be able to, you know, I was taking off the months of hormone suppression, right? the suffering and the pain that I'm going to be able to come off my medication and try to have a baby, you know, one more month, you know, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, but um, just getting here has been amazing. I actually was about to be enrolled in the trial, but the trial became full mm. right before I could be in it. But I actually, you know, in this world, there are amazing people. And I actually, the head of the head of the US arm for the trial, she's out of Harvard. And I just sent her an email one day and I was like, what do you think? Like, should I do this? Here's my information. She wrote me back a whole long email. So you're, nice. You're a great candidate. You should do it. And, you know, um, my oncologist is really supportive, even though I'm not in the trial. Um, right. So it's very important to have people on your team that listen to all your goals, not just staying alive. But I would say that, um, you know, in life, like I would say, if somebody tells you you need chemo and you get three opinions and they all say you need chemo, like you should probably get chemo, right? Right. <laughs> um, but when it's a little bit not as black and white, a little bit more gray, it's so important to read and advocate for yourself, learn, talk to other people, because it's not all cut and dry. There are so many women out there that I've personally met and spoken to that have gone on and had children after breast cancer. I'm not saying it's for everybody. And right. I'm not saying that everybody can do it. It's, you know, don't want to give false hope to anybody. And it's not for everybody. Not everybody's comfortable. You know, there's a risk involved in everything sure. that you do. But, you know, I would say if it's something that's important to you, like I don't, I would never want to say to somebody, your dreams are not valuable. Some people would say to me when I was, you know, going through it, they'd say, well, you know what? Thank God you have one child. Like, you're good. Like, at least you have one. I know you're not going to be able to have more, but at least you have one. Right. And I'm like, but that's not my dream. Right. Like, maybe t 
to you, that would be okay. But just because you feel that that's okay doesn't mean that I feel that's okay. The same person would probably not say that if you had a child and then lost a child. Right. They would say, well, you have one left. Right. Right. But exactly. that's how you view it. It's like exactly. a loss. You're losing the family exactly. you thought you were have, exactly. going to have. I wanted to ask you a, a few things that I just thought were so interesting to get your perspective on. From First from the pregnancy, yeah. now looking back. At the time you were diagnosed, was there any moment in time where you felt it's me versus the baby? Like... Or, oh, like if we do what's right for me, it's bad for the baby. Or if we do what's right for the baby, it's bad for me. Like, were you made to feel the way or did you feel that yourself? I think that I did have somewhat those kind of feelings, but I think that they were, it was more of, obviously I wasn't in my right state of mind, Mm -hmm. but of self-sacrifice, meaning towards the end when I knew I wasn't well. And I probably should say to somebody like, hey, like my vision's blurry or like, you know, say something in my twisted mind at the time, because I was so focused on getting my daughter to a healthy place that I felt like I'm going to sacrifice myself so that my daughter can get to the end. Where in reality, that's not the case because we would have both been up, you know, what's Creek without paddle. You know, I did feel that I would like, give it all to me, like, give me all the pain, the suffering, just don't put her in the NICU. Right. I don't want to see her on a a ventilator. I don't want to see her with complications, you know, complications from that. A lot of women do feel that way in pregnancy, but it it usually doesn't work out that way. Like I right. said, usually if it's not good for the mother, it's also not good for the baby. And and there's so many layers to that. There's also, you know, there's sort of like what you could see on the surface, but then there's the next layer of, again, there's your physical health, there's your mental health. And there's, and with the baby, there's all these other variables. And it's, but it's one of the times when that conflict potentially comes to the surface for people and they're it's very hard for them to process that yeah 100 like, percent. they're like well you know then becomes like guilt versus again competency like all these things you know as a mother it's just it's 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 pretty gruesome i mean obviously it don't explain why it's so hard to get you know why it's gruesome to get a cancer diagnosis during pregnancy but that is one one of the facets and the other thing is in terms of processing emotions you're at the end of pregnancy which is a joyous time right and you're also in a very fearful time. How do those two emotions work together? You deliver a baby. They didn't. I mean, what, For what me, happens? they didn't. For me, they did not work together. Did the fear override the joy? 100%. So you, could, you couldn't really feel the joy. It wasn't actually fear. It was yeah. absolute heart-wrenching sadness. Okay. It was just sadness. When was the first time you felt joy about having, about having your daughter, would you say? <sighs> like true, like, I'm really happy to have her, you know. I think when we took her home from the NICU. Uh-huh. And like, I finally got, you know, that you're part of your birth plan. Like I had her little outfit, <laughs> which of course didn't fit her because right. she was tiny. Right. You know, it had strawberries on it and it was just very sweet. And when we put her in and she was like, literally like swallowed by the car seat. She was so small. But I think my husband and I just laughed. We had a really good laugh and we looked at her and we were like, we're like so proud to take her home. And we felt yeah. very proud that we got her, you know. Yeah. To this place. She's coming home. She's, thank God, healthy. She doesn't need anything else besides high calorie formula. And, you know, I think I really felt a lot, big sense of pride there That's that good. I did it. Right. You know, um, even though I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I, Cancer aside. Yeah. But, you know, personal mistakes because of my like emotional fragility. But we did it. Yeah. So we made it. We spoke a lot about your various, you know, your doctors and how from your original doctors to the one who, you know, helped you when you were getting the biopsy and the results and everyone else. There's this idea in medicine, you know about this, I know about this, 
about patient autonomy, about letting people make choices for themselves, which is a great concept, but doesn't always work out perfectly for many reasons versus sort of like, just tell me what I need to do. And what was the balance you were looking for at the time? And where did it work or did it not work? I would say that I've definitely learned a lot Uh and I've grown a lot. I've learned a lot about what it means to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not a simple thing like, hey, Dr. Fox, like I want this. Like that's just the tip of the iceberg of self-advocacy. Self-advocacy is also reading, talking to people, getting other opinions, not necessarily feeling like there's only one way. And I think that's also a mindset. It's not necessarily only the give and take between the doctor. It's also the patient's mindset of being able to look outside and sort of say like, is there another way? So a good example for me in that respect, I would say is after my chemo, I had an option of I could get radiation or I could do a mastectomy. For me, my genetics panel was all negative, meaning I don't have either BRCA. Mm-hmm. I don't have any, you know, back in the day, they only used to do BRCA one and two. You have none of the cancer genes. Yeah. Right. Today they have all these other yeah. panels. Um, so who the hell knows right. why I got this? I don't know, whatever. Right. But I was negative for everything. Thank goodness. So on paper, I didn't need a double mastectomy. Mm-hmm. On paper, I didn't need that. There's a big push in the last couple of years in the world of breast cancer that if you can do a lumpectomy, which is basically breast spearing, meaning the woman still isn't as disfigured. She right. just has a lump, a lumpectomy. She has the piece of the cancer removed. She's not as disfigured. There's a big push for that. A lot of data came out that there's no difference in the outcomes between mastectomy and lumpectomy. That's great. I'm all about right. hashtag science. Right. So when it came time for me to make the decision of what I was going to do, I knew that I didn't need a double mastectomy. You know, we're not in the days of like right. Angelina Jolie. We're right. like, oh, you, you get a double mastectomy right. and you get a yeah. double mastectomy. I knew that I didn't need it. But something interesting that was posed to me was that if I did a mastectomy, I wouldn't need radiation. So meaning because I didn't have lymph nodes involved, I had a lumpectomy on the area, you need some type of cleanup. Right. Cleanup around the area could be radiation locally to the breast tissue, or it's a mastectomy. For me, because I didn't have lymph nodes involved, if I got a mastectomy, I didn't need radiation. And this is where I think for me... This is where a lot of my self-advocacy came about. I really deliberated a long time. I spoke to a lot of people and read, you know, I was 33 years old when I was diagnosed. My tumor was on the left side. The radiation that they do today is very focused. The likelihood of having any, you know, lung injury or cardiac injury is low. It's not zero. But for me, because of my age, I was worried about long-term effects. The long-term effects of radiation come out later, like heart failure and those kinds of things, meaning 20 years later down the line. So for me, combined with the fact that I have very dense breast tissue and my breasts were very large, I felt for me that I wanted to have a mastectomy. The fact that you were planning up more kids, was that part of that decision also? You know what? I felt like my daughter at that point was formula fed and doing great. Uh And I felt like, you know what? Like I knew in my heart that if I did only the lumpectomy with radiation, I would constantly being biopsied, constantly right. being scanned because my breasts were dense right. and very large. And again, you're 33. Yeah. It's going to be I the just, next 60, yeah. 60 and I, 70 years. And I thought, years, you know what, yeah. like if, if it's breastfeeding, which obviously it's sad that right. if I wouldn't be able to do it in the future, but I felt like if that's if that's the thing I have to sacrifice, for me, it was worth it. It's not necessarily peace of mind because as the data says, it doesn't really change your recurrence rate or overall survival. No, it was the right decision for you. It was the right decision for me. And so ultimately, because of the mastectomy and issues with symmetry, I actually was approved to get a double and I was very happy about it. You mean approved by like insurance? Yes. Yeah. 
you know, so the doctors were very discouraging. The breast surgeon did not want me to do a mastectomy because nobody wants to be that doctor today that does a mastectomy when you don't need to. Right. Because it's not. It's, right. It, it's today it's considered not I don't want to say the word overkill, but meaning right. there's that's the trend right now right. is to be more breast aware and breast sparing. Right. They don't want to be, you know, referred to as like the barbaric right. surgeon exactly. who's disfiguring right. women, even that's if it's right. what you wanted. Right. That's yeah. right. So that was a, a juncture where I could yeah. make a choice. Right. So I had already made my choice. And then I basically had to think about reconstruction of what I, you know, what kind of reconstruction did I want? And this is not a knock on anybody who has breast implants at all. Uh, but I think it's very important to understand that women who have breast implants after a mastectomy, it's totally different both from how they look and also how they feel to, let's say, a woman who had smaller breasts who wanted an augmentation. Right. The look and feel is totally different because you don't have that breast tissue there. And I was just reading about, you know, women that have had breast implants after mastectomy for long periods of time, the kind of the issues that they've had. I'm sure you've heard of it, like yeah. breast implant illness, right? Um, all kinds of problems that you can get with them, um, reactions, allergic reactions. And then ultimately, you have to change the breast implants out around every 10 years. And so because of my age and all of those factors, and I know I'm already an allergic person mm -hmm. based on this story, yeah. I said, you know what? I just, it's not for me. Like it's very well for somebody else, could be for somebody else. But for me, I just, it's not for me. I'm not going to get breast implants. Like I'm not going to, you know, breast implant illness, if you've heard of right. it. It's something that's very, there's also other cancers you can get from the implants, like certain types of lymphomas. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not going through all of this right. to get some other problem right. from a foreign body right. that I'm going to elect to put in my body right now. Like there's just, just not, I'd rather go flat. And so ultimately I learned about natural tissue reconstruction, which previously um, in the past, I would say 10 to 15 years was reserved for women who had extensive radiation on their breasts, who couldn't talk, the skin couldn't tolerate an implant, uh -huh. meaning the skin wasn't um, right. stretchy. stretchy or pliable enough. And their yeah. only option was to get a natural tissue reconstruction. But as the data has evolved and new information has come out about, you know, women after mastectomy having problems with breast implants, more women are electing to do natural tissue reconstruction. Ultimately, that's what I chose. Right. It's not like a simple procedure at all. It's not it's, a walk in the park. It's not liposuction. It's <laughs> yeah. not like a Brazilian butt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> augmentation. Right. It's not like, you know, it's not yeah. just liposuction. It's actually, you have to go to a specialist called a microsurgeon yeah. who basically resects a part of your body. For me, it was my abdomen, mm -hmm. my stomach. They resect the arteries and they connect them to the arteries in your chest because the tissue can't survive without right. perfusion. And if you don't go to a good enough specialist or sometimes it's just bad luck that the transplant can fail. Yeah. You can end up with one and then you have to try again with another source. So my doctor, I think, thought I was like a nut, you know, that I was going to do this surgery when I didn't necessarily have a, a clear need, like meaning I didn't try a breast implant and fail. But ultimately, I knew in my heart it was the right decision for me. It was a very long surgery. It was 12 hours. I really had to advocate to get to the plastic surgeon that I wanted, who was absolutely phenomenal and amazing, who changed right. my life like a mensch bar none. Yeah. It was the best decision for me. Like I would advocate for that surgery for anybody who's even might be in this situation or thinking about it. There's nothing like the feeling of having your own right. tissue. This mindset, has that changed how you think as a doctor or how your husband thinks as a doctor? 100%. Just going back to the words, right. like just words are so powerful, much more sensitive to to things of this nature. I know he gets particularly affected when he treats women who are breast cancer patients. Just a lot of sensitivity there. Right. What about in terms of like autonomy and 
giving patients choices and do you think differently about that as a doctor? Not to say that I'm like the greatest doctor ever, but (laughs) I would say that pre my diagnosis, I always said, um, I learned from one of my mentors, like every doctor knows their limitation. Like every doctor also needs to know when to say, let's get another opinion. Right. You know, and the doctor whose ego is so big that they can't stop and do that probably is not the right doctor for you. Yeah. I believe that's so strongly. Yeah. And I would say that I've never had a problem saying like pump the brakes, like let me get somebody else involved and to help us out here. But I would say even more so now, I really try to ask the questions to the specialist who it's directed at because people generally have a lot of opinions and feelings and things they've seen. But I try to really direct my questions to the appropriate specialist. (laughs) Yeah. I, I asked you how you're doing overall, but I'm curious in terms of one specific thing, you know, your birth obviously thank God your daughter's healthy and, and you're doing well, but obviously very traumatic experience to go through. And this is something that's come up before on, on the podcast that even when the outcome is good, the event is traumatic. And that itself is something from which you need to recover, so to speak. Where are you in that in terms of like the trauma and thinking back on it? You know, how are you now compared to then? What do you think is going to be moving forward? I'm just really curious to hear yeah. your thoughts on that. Because my journey was really situational, meaning around a certain, my trauma, I should say, was based on somebody else, me hearing somebody else dictate my reproductive future. I think for me, when I have another child, I think it'll be very restorative for me. And I know that seems like very like cut and dry, like Mm -hmm. I'm not healed until I have another child. That's not the case. The fact that I'm already here on this journey and have seven specialists behind me that are rooting for me. For me, I'm already, I already feel that I've crossed the finish line, but ultimately I feel like what I really would like to do is God willing, have another baby and walk into the surgeon's office. (laughs) Hi, remember me? Yeah. Just kidding. Was, was there a point where you, you know, where you couldn't even tell the story because it was just too painful? Yeah. I would imagine it takes a long time to even talk about it. I mean, there's a lot of shame also. I mean, I think depending on where you come from, what, you know, also community, whatever your background is, your involvement, I think there are stigmas and and taboos around talking about these things. And I would say initially I was much more reserved, but I'm definitely not as so, meaning I am involved in groups. I talk to other women. I made myself available um, to be like, meaning through my doctors, they know that they can have their patients reach out to me they want to talk about anything or have any questions. It was actually a a big part of how I got here because through my plastic surgeon, I met a woman that was on the patient referral list who told me that she's had three children after her Mm. breast cancer. And she was like, just stick to the plan, like stay positive. This is just temporary and you're going to get through it and you'll have everything you want. Last thing I want to ask you, today. (laughs) We're going to talk many, many more times moving forward. But today, looking back on this whole thing, global view, where you are now going all the way back then, what have you learned about yourself? And what have you learned just about life in general, like the big lessons that you've, that you know now that you didn't know then? I would say pre-cancer, 
anybody who knew me always knew that I was like the get it done person. Meaning like if there was an issue that came up, if there was anybody that could do it, they could call me and I could solve the problem. I could make whatever it was happen, happen. That's an element of being like very type A, very aggressive, very organized to like a fault, overly so, and also overly controlling. Not, I don't want to say not controlling my relationship, but controlled every aspect like of life to the most minute detail. And I think going through all of this, I've really had to like let go a lot. It also comes back to also like being the provider and the patient. I've learned, had to learn how to be the patient. And I think I've really come a long way with that where I can just sit in the doctor's office and just be the patient. We'll find out. Yeah, you'll find out. (laughs) We'll see. I've sworn up and down to every doctor. I'm like, I am a changed lady. I will be the best patient you ever had. You were a great patient. You're you're giving yourself a lot of, uh, you know, bad rap here. You were a great patient going through something really horrible. You were always kind. You were always thoughtful. You were always asking the right questions. You were you were ideal. You were just going through a horrible thing, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're an emotional wreck, but you should be an emotional wreck. It's an emotional wreckage that was yeah. happening. But no, you were a great patient. There. Thank you. Yeah. No, but I just definitely think um, letting go of some of the aspects of control and letting somebody else take care of you, trusting in that, having the ability to let go and say, you decide. You know, that's that balance between autonomy and right. not, because at some point you're tired. Yeah. At some point you just want to say just like, take it from me and just tell me what's the right thing to do because your brain just gets so tired from constantly having to be three steps ahead when you're fried you had chemo you had this you had that and you're still your brain's always you know what's the next move what's the next move but you're tired you know so wow i've learned a lot (laughs) listen well i'm inspired by you i think that you're amazing i think that what you went through was so huge and so difficult but you handled it honestly yes it was very difficult at the time but you know it's been a while we've known each other a while with such grace actually and it's and the fact that you're willing to talk about it for a very long time you know and <laughs> which is great i think that it is a just on the face of just interesting and fascinating people will hear it and say wow like that's i'm, I'm a better person for hearing the story but there's Women out there are going to hear this and it's going to resonate with them personally, obviously, if it's exactly the same thing or just close enough and the same emotions. And it's important, like you said, to tell your story. It's for you and it's for me and it's for people who listen. And it's just really profound. And I I just appreciate you doing it. Thank you. I'm so glad I got to talk to Jamie about her birth story. When she came in to record a few weeks ago and I got to see her in person again, It brought me so much joy. She looks terrific. She has a huge smile on her face. And thank God she is doing great. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options 
for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guests.